The reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, and can be found on pages 1016 in the Church Bibles. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they, went, as, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard him say it on reaching Jerusalem Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts and as he taught them he said is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. 
This is the word of the Lord. It's always helpful to remember that when we look week by week at particular episodes, as we are at the moment in Mark's Gospel, we don't get the full story. So as we look at these verses in chapter 11, we need to remember that there's much, much more to come in the coming weeks as we lead up to Easter. Let's pray as we look at this passage. Help us, Father, to adjust to Mark's timeline, to his priorities, which may not exactly be what's reflected in the way we celebrate things in England today. We, we're just surfacing, as it were, from Christmas. And here we are being reminded of the last week of the life of Jesus here on earth. So help us to hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us personally and to your church as we get the, the greater, much more wonderful picture of your purposes for us. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are good books on Mark. There are good books even on the prophet Jeremiah. For those house group leaders who want to know more, speak to me afterwards. But um, as I've just prayed, it's quite a difficult adjustment from the um, reality of December when the 25th somehow gets celebrated from weeks before, and there are good reasons for that in our culture, um, to adjusting to the realities of January, which we're just about doing, I guess, and then what comes along for our Sunday sermon and for house groups meeting this week, but the reminder of the entry of Jesus and the disciples into Jerusalem in other words, we're into the final week of the life of Jesus here on earth. And it's, as we all know, hugely, hugely significant. One way or another, each of the Gospels brings us, us into this with a focus that's quite unmistakable. It's dominant and it's undeniable, the events that we're beginning to look at. And Mark's already prepared us for this point. Again, it's helpful to remember that nothing in any of the Gospels is where it is um, in a random sort of way. I nearly said it in the Spanish way, por casualidad, you know, it just happens. It doesn't just happen. And these seemingly perhaps unrelated episodes in the first part of Mark chapter 11 hang together with huge significance. And Mark's prepared us for that. Look back to chapter 10 and verse 45, where Jesus is referring himself with the messianic title, Son of Man, 
and reminds us that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the moment we get the word ransom, we're into the significance of where it's all going. But it's also where it's all coming from. And we can easily miss that. For ransom is closely related to the word redeem, to redemption, and takes us back into Old Testament times. So what Mark has in mind is this. He's thinking about God's great exodus rescue of his people from Egypt. That's, as it were, the backward reference. And in ways that will gradually become apparent in Mark's gospel, as in the other gospels, is that we are looking forward to the death of Jesus and what it will accomplish as a massive, new, worldwide, for all time, leading into eternity, a massive new exodus rescue for the people of God. So we're reminded again that the Old and the New Testament, in practical terms, are inescapably linked. We can't fully understand the new unless we have some understanding of the old. And even the introductory bit, which seems to be tied up, if you like, with the mechanics of how Jesus and the disciples actually enter Jerusalem, even those first 11 verses of Mark 11 um, have their Old Testament background. And uh, Mark is alluding, amongst other passages, to the words of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9. And this is what we read in that verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And those prophetic words were uttered by Zechariah 500 years before the events we're looking at in Mark chapter 11. The prophet then spoke of God's king who would come in humility to save and to rescue. Now the problem then, as often it is for us today, the problem then as Jesus entered Jerusalem is that certainly the religious leaders, many of those who were fairly comfortable with the state of things as they were, the last thing they wanted to hear was a message about rescue and salvation. And that's a very real problem for us in the societies in which we live today. We, we have a quite extraordinary 
conviction that we can sort everything out ourselves, that we really don't need help, thank you. And the word of God says that in what really matters, there's no way we can sort it out for ourselves. And like the Jews of old, uh, we're inclined to think that if we just do religion our way, with occasional reference to scripture, it will work out. And the word of God again says, that won't happen. It's only as we allow Christ to rule our lives through his word that we can find Exodus freedom. And then, as now, that's a tough message to receive. And that's where perhaps the central part of our passage, I'm referring to Mark 11, verses 12 to 21, these verses can help us to understand why. The most graphic bit, of course, is when Jesus single-handedly brings trade in the temple to a total standstill. And above the sound of the clattering coins and the squawking pigeons, he quotes from two hugely significant Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. First, Isaiah 56, verse 7, and then Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And putting the quotes together, he says this, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, the, the fuller context of the Jeremiah passage is hugely important, and... It's worth reading, which we'll do in a moment, because it makes it very clear that it's not just what's going on in the temple that's the problem, the issue of the money changes, the, the traders, and so on. Jeremiah chapter 7, reading from verse 9, says this, and it's the prophet speaking, and he's speaking to the people of God. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you 
but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will do now to the house that bears my name. The temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and to your fathers, I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. You see, there was a problem within the way things happened in the temple and the temple forecourts, and that's what immediately catches our eyes. But the greater problem was the colossal mismatch between how the majority of the people of God lived during the week and what happened and what they expected to happen when they met for worship. Come back with me to Mark chapter 11 and verses 12 to 14 in particular. Jeremiah's verdict was the judgment of God on the people of God in his day. And Jesus is reiterating that message to, as it were, the Jewish church of his time. Theirs had become a religion of empty show, the leafy tree without the fruit. And understandably, in verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him because they feared him. And then, clearly, Peter and the others too, possibly, are thinking about what they are seeing unfolding before their very eyes. And Peter's reflecting on the deeper significance of this vivid parable of the fig tree. And he's asking questions that go deep to what will happen next for the likes of him and the other disciples and other faithful Jewish believers. And clearly he's troubled by the implications of what Jesus is saying, that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. And the time came in AD 70 when that happened. And the sort of questions going through his mind and maybe that of the other disciples could be along these lines. What will happen? Will we still be able to draw near God to God if the temple's gone? Will we still be able to pray? Will there still be a way of forgiveness? For you see, for faithful Jews at that time, meeting with God and being able to pray, and most significantly knowing that their sin their shame, their guilt can be dealt with, it all somehow related that to that place, the temple in Jerusalem. And what if it no longer exists? 
what will become of us. And I think it's against that background that we can make sense of verses 22 to 25. Because Jesus speaks to the, the deep unease of Peter and perhaps the others with words of reassurance. Yes, Peter, you can still pray. And you will receive extraordinary answers to your prayers. Yes, Peter, you can still be forgiven, provided that you in turn forgive others. But only if you have faith in God. Only if you don't doubt whatever happens externally, but continue to believe Now, it's fairly obvious, I guess, that we too live in times of great change when much of what is familiar, what we've grown up with if we're older people, suddenly has less influence than it did before and maybe assumes far less influence and importance in national life. And the temptation, maybe, is to put our trust in particular places more than we should, particular institutions more than they warrant, and even particular religious leaders who also can fail. And we need to hear the voice of Jesus addressing our concerns in times of great change. And he brings us back to the constant, steady assurance of Scripture from the beginning to the end, from the old to the new, that God, who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, remains totally and utterly reliable. And he's totally and utterly reliable for everyone, be it in this land and across the world, who turns, who repents from their sin and puts their trust in him and are obedient to his commands. And I hope, as I do, you find that immensely reassuring. Let's pray. So simple and easy to say as Jesus did to Peter, have faith in God. But the challenge is to turn from our sin and to put our trust in our Saviour and to be obedient to his commands. So let's pray for that gracious work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives today and in the life of the church of which we're part and particularly the wider church 
that God will speak to us and that we will listen and help us as we accompany Mark into this last week, dear Father, of the events leading up to the sacrifice of your Son. Help us to grasp anew the wonder of it all and to be thankful. Amen.